Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 201 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Also brought to you by Acoustic Disc, where if you go to Acoustic Disc's website right now and sign up for their email list, every week they send you a free tune, also known as the Treat of the Week. You'll also get updates um, and, and be the first to know about new releases, and you're going to hear about an incredible one that's going to be coming up here in part two of the episode here with Dog. So, Acoustic Disc, thank you for sponsoring this episode. Hope everybody is doing well. This one's a, a, another great one with Dog, and we get into some really cool stuff, and, and including talking about composition and, and some stuff like that. So I'm excited for you to hear this. All right, so let's jump into the sponsors real quick here. Thanks again to Jake. Be sure to check that out. And uh, let's go into Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. Some of the best in the biz, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, and Ian Corey. The courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation to tab, play-along tracks, plenty of tunes and songs to play in all the styles you could imagine that this beautiful mandolin can cover. The best part is you can join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs. Ear Trumpet Labs hand-built microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed. They have great feedback rejection for live use and some of the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. And you can check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins, designed and built in Austin, Texas. String Joy Strings, they got those brand new mandolin strings and they're giving mandolins and beer listeners 10% off their order of strings. And that could be any of the strings at String Joy. Um, I highly recommend the coated strings. They feel and sound great. Go to stringjoy.com and use the promo code mandolinbeer, all one word, all lowercase, to check out and get yourself 10% off. Speaking of killer sounding things, Tone Slabs. Get yourself a slab of tone over at toneslabs.com. They've got all the shapes and sizes. They can customize it any way you want. Uh, they can even put different logos on there for you. So be sure to reach out to them. They're great. I have not used a, another pick since I got my uh, my Darth Tone from, from the folks there at Tone Slab. So David and Frank, thank you so much. This episode, too, we talk about one of the things we talk about, and actually we kick it off with, is the 100th anniversary of those 23 lores. And, and last year, Dog did an incredible recording, Happy Birthday, Lloyd Lore. And to go along with this 100-year thing, Roger Simonoff put together just the, the, the most unbelievable book that you could imagine. And again, I say book, there's no way really to, to even label this as just a book. It's so much more. It's the life work of Roger getting all this information on Lloyd Lore and it's got so much information in it and just a couple teasers. When and why did Lore leave Gibson? You know, we've talked about it. We've heard about it. He's only there for a short time. You know, when did he leave and why? And actually 
Since Lord left Gibson in October of 1924, who actually tested and proved and signed labels for the 26 master model instruments made in November and December in 1924. All that and more is answered in this incredible book, The Life and Work of Lloyd Allaire Lore. Go to Simonoff Books now, get yourself a copy. Get a copy for the mandolin lover in your world. Get it in time for the holidays here. It's already the uh, 27th of October. So the holiday times are right around the corner. I highly recommend this book. And Elderly Instruments, you guys, elderly.com. Normally I have a read I do for them, but I want to tip my hat to my friends over at Elderly Instruments. They have been named America's top small business for 2023 by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. This award is granted to them. There were over 15,000 applicants from across the nation. Congratulations to Stan and Lillian, the entire elderly family. They they were my favorite place to visit when I lived in Michigan. I go to their website multiple times a week. You should do so as well. Their service is second to none. I mean, congratulations to them. Find out for yourself why they won this award. Just go to elderly.com. So congrats, y'all. And one little special thing here before we get into the episode with Dog, I got my buddy Jake Jolliffe on the line here. Jake, how's it going, buddy? Good. How are you, Daniel? Doing good, man. Always good to hear from you. And you. Sounds like you just got back from a cool thing up in uh, at Cornell. Yeah, yeah, I was up there doing this interesting project with a couple of professors from up there and a great musician, Jesse Jones, who's a professor at Oberlin. Um, yeah, it was kind of an uh, interesting project, kind of sort of progressive uh, bluegrass, but it also sort of sounded like the Pat Metheny group. Uh, it's, it's kind of hard to explain what it was, but it was really fun. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Why we're talking is you have another, uh, another online course coming up here in November. I do. Yeah, man. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it's November 10th, 11th, and 12th, and uh, it's four two-hour workshops, so one on the 10th, two on the 11th, and one on the 12th. And they, uh, you know, over the pandemic, I started doing these workshops on various topics, and then sort of post-pandemic, I had the idea to do like a whole weekend where I kind of traverse all the topics. And, um, you know, I I enjoyed doing it because I always learn a lot, and, you know, my thinking on the various subjects is always evolving. Um, but there's a, a course that's going to be sort of on uh, playing effortlessly, which is something that uh, I work on a lot. I'm just sort of finding like the most enjoyable way to play, you know, like physically and mentally. Um, so the course on that, there's a course on uh, getting to know the fretboard, which is sort of like, you know, based on a system that I've been sort of using ever since I first uh, saw Chris Thiele play like 20 years ago <laughs> and uh, wanted to figure out a way like you know he knows where all the notes are I wanted to figure out a way to to also know where all the notes are and everything I've done since then has sort of been based on that same system uh, that I developed uh, for myself and then a course on jazz mandolin and a course on bluegrass mandolin uh, two hours a piece um, you know, tackling sort of my, in the jazz course, my approach for getting to know a jazz standard, you know, the harmony and the melody, um, and, you know, how to, how to navigate more jazz types of harmony. And then, you know, the bluegrass course, sort of the equivalent thing for bluegrass, you know, how do you build a bluegrass solo? Uh, and with that, I, I, I like to start with sort of, um, you know, a skeleton approach that, you know, almost anyone could play. 
and then how you would go about developing that um, really to to as advanced of a level as you would want. Um, so yeah, and, and the course as a whole, the whole weekend, it should be pretty applicable to all levels. Um, you know, it's, it's, I find it to be, you know, teaching beginners versus teaching really advanced players. They're both, it's both hard, you know, and both inspiring. Uh, so I, I like having uh, a mix of, of, of different levels in the class. So that's a little bit about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's great, man. Where's the best place everybody can um, sign up for it at? So my good buddy Magnus, who has a mandolinsecrets.com yeah. uh, that you probably know, um, great mandolin player and great pedagogue, uh, he's sort of hosting it. So uh, you can sign up at www.mandolinsecrets.com slash workshop. Uh, and uh, it's also on my website, and uh, I'll be putting a link on my Instagram too. Uh, like in my bio um but yeah he'll be hosting it you know helping me kind of like field questions and stuff that's the other thing i'll definitely be taking questions in each one of the courses um oh and i also forgot to mention on on saturday night on the uh on the 11th um i'll be um uh playing a little duo show with miles saloniker a little live stream duo show who's uh plays in my band is in totally incredible shredding uh, bluegrass and modern jazz bass player so we'll play some bluegrass we'll play some jazz uh, probably some other stuff probably sing a little bit um so yeah so it's the four workshops plus a little live stream show <laughs> that's awesome and as, yeah. a, as a person who's taken lessons from you i can definitely speak to what a great teacher you are oh thanks yeah that was some of the you know the best things I ever did for my playing were taking. Lessons oh man, it's good to hear. I, I I really enjoyed those lessons. I remember we were working on a little bit of Charlie Parker. Yeah, uh, one of my one of my favorite things to delve into. In fact, I remember we were working on the Charlie Parker solo I played in my entrance uh, application to Berkeley. That's <laughs> like right. 15, yeah, fifteen. No, more closer to twenty years ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I love to teach, and, and like I said, I like to teach all levels. And you know, I've had some of my biggest like epiphanies in teaching really beginning lessons. You know, because I think the you know the mark of I don't have the exact quote. I'm sure several people have said it, but you know, to, to if you're ma to master something, you need to be able to explain it. You know, to like the layman or the total beginner, but also being able to talk in an in depth way to the um, the expert, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so you can learn a lot from both. And I certainly do. Well, that's awesome. Well, I, I can't think of many more people who play more effortlessly than you whenever I see you play. That's usually, <laughs> oops, shoot. This thing just kicked in here. Sorry. Shit. No worries. I can't think of anybody who plays more effortlessly than you. So this is the uh, perfect, the perfect course to take. If you want to play, uh, more more freely and less rigid you are so smooth man <laughs> oh thanks man well you know and, and at the end of the day it all comes down to just putting the time in but um you know there's no kind of way around that and and certainly like practicing and performing and all that has been a big part of my life pretty much my whole life but you know there's stuff you can practice that you know uh move you towards effortlessness and then there's certainly ways of practicing that don't uh, a lot of ways of practicing that don't. Um, in fact, I would say there's certain ways of practicing you could do that your whole life and it would never become more effortless. Um, and, you know, and I'm, I'm not to say that I know exactly what the right thing to practice is, but I just have, you know, kind of the strategies I've developed over my uh, 
25 years of playing. Uh, wait, what am I saying? 28 years of playing now? A lot of years of playing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, I got kind of like this, because I was a lot of that time I was self-taught, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's, you know, I have sort of all these like, you know, strategies I've developed and that I sort of tap into on a daily basis to try to get better. Uh, and I like to, I like to talk about them. Anytime I can find, uh, you know, a room or zoom room of people that want to talk about mandolin, um, you know, I'm excited. (laughs) Well, sweet man. Well, dude, I'll have the, uh, the link below here in the description and, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to checking those out myself. Thank you so much, Daniel. I really appreciate it. All right, so be sure to check that out. Link below. And on top, I talked, I've taken lessons with Jake below, but I've also uh, done a couple of his workshops as well, and they're incredible. So be sure to check them out. It's great stuff. And speaking of great stuff, here's part two with the legend himself, David the Dog Grisman. Cheers, everybody. Well, we are, you're, you're talking about instruments. I think it'd be a good time, too, to talk about this year is the 100th anniversary of the 23 Lores, but you released last year a really cool release called Happy Birthday, Lloyd Lore. Maybe talk a little bit about that project for people who might not be familiar with it. Yeah. Well, I realized I have, you know, several of those instruments and two of them, one from the first batch, the earliest known number from the first batch, there is a prototype that was made in June of 1922 or the label was signed then, but and uh, that had a, a lot of damage to it. But I have this earliest known one out of the first batch that has a parrot painted on the back that I left alone. And then I have uh, Crusher, the mandolin that Steve Gilchrist nicknamed Crusher. That's a December 20th lore instrument. And both 1922. I noticed that they were both turning a hundred, so I thought it would, you know, being that I have a, a, a studio, I figured it, it'd be cool to record them on their hundredth birthdays. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I put together a little project, and it it wasn't all that long. It's got seven pieces on it, and there there's several solos of each, and then I played some duets on them and i decided to uh not sell this project but give it away free if you bought one of the dog work series which is a compilation of all the tunes i've written that i've recorded through the years in chronological order in which they were written it's also a way you know i have uh, a lot of versions of tunes that i've never released so gave me an opportunity to put out some of the things that I thought were really good, but, you know, didn't have a a particular project for them. I love, too, how you did um, Happy Birthday Parrot, Happy Birthday Crusher, and then you did Turn of the Century on each one, and then each one had their own tune, the Parrot and Crusher's Cruise. Now, to your ears, what's what's the, the sonic difference and the feel difference? I mean, obviously, Crusher is like you know, it's synonymous with you and, you know, probably like a limb. Well, to be honest with you, you know, a lot of times I'm a mandolin collector and I've used a, a lot of these things on recordings. A lot of times I can't tell which mandolin was on which recording. <laughs> yeah. I think 
Well, one thing about the parrot is it's got a Verzi tone producer in it. I don't know. There's subtle differences. I think, you know, it's a little maybe sweeter than Crusher. Actually, the mandolin I play all the time now is a Giacomel made in Italy that, like, is twice as loud as Crusher and twice as sweet and very responsive. I like to play very... I don't like to play hard, which is one pitfall of playing gigs. You tend to just hit hit the thing too hard sometimes. But anyhow, it's pertaining to instruments and even Lloyd Lohr's. I have a project that I'm working on right now that's going to come out second week in November. Are you familiar with the Musical Instrument Museum in, in Phoenix, Arizona? I am, yeah. A young man named Rich Walter is the curator there. And I met him a few years ago when the Dog Trio played a gig there. And he was very inspired by the tone poems recordings. And he came up with the idea of having a 10-month exhibit called Acoustic America. And they've got over 30 of my instruments there now. It's going to be part of this. And so I'm creating an ancillary uh, audio project to go along with this exhibit. Oh, wow. I had some instruments in my collection that I never recorded with. Like, I have a uh, probably one-of-a-kind 1912 10-string Gibson F4. And I had never done anything with it. So I wrote a tune, you know, which spans four and a half octaves on this thing <laughs> and and then i have uh, another instrument in the exhibit as a 1905 wayman shopurian five-string banjos man named shopurian was a banjo virtuoso in the early part of the 20th century and uh i wrote this tune and then asked my good buddy danny barnes who I get together with every week and work on the tunes I've been writing and send in the music. And he overdubbed this banjo on there. And then it occurred to me that one was a five-string instrument and one was a ten-string instrument. And I said, I wonder when the first five and ten-cent store was. And I looked it up and it was 1908. And so I call it the five and ten-cent rag. And then... Another instrument in my collection was Ralph Rensler's first F5, like a 1954 F5 that he transformed into a, a Fern F5. And, and I watched him refinish this instrument. And I, I've owned it for a number of years. So I wrote a tune called Rensler's Rag. That's on this project as well. So that's what I'm working on now. There's about 32 instruments on this it's it's kind of like tone poems but this exhibit is really connects a lot of these instruments with the people like i have a, you've probably seen pictures of ira leuven playing a um, blonde martin 215 mandolin that he he himself transformed into the mandolin equivalent of a nudie suit (laughs) (laughs) and uh i'd never recorded with that and i have curly seckler's f2 that he played with flat and scrubs and 
just a whole bunch of cool things. I, I was offered a few years ago, Jethro Byrne's daughter called me up and offered me his very first Gibson mandolin, which was a 1922 A2. Oh, wow. And so, uh, yeah, I wrote a tune called Ode to Jethro and played that on there. So, you know, I'm pr I keep me pretty busy with music and, you know, having a great time doing it. Is this something that's going to come out on your on the Acoustic Disc website too, or is this just going to be available? Yeah, oh, yeah, cool. it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. We're releasing a new project on Saturday. This tomorrow, actually, a live recording from 1972. It's the only complete concert ever to be released by Roscoe Holcomb, the amazing banjo player and singer that uh, John Cohn of the New Wall City Ramblers discovered when he was making a uh, Folkways record called Mountain Music of Kentucky. And years ago, a man named Jonathan Bilchick left me his archive of master recordings that he pretty much recorded every bluegrass band, every traditional music concert that came through New York in the 1970s. Holy cow. And so I've been mining my archives and, uh, you know, keep writing new tunes and recording them and uh, trying to keep, uh, <laughs> keep going on. The great thing about these releases you're putting out, like you were saying, you know, some of these things recorded in the 70s, you know, they're field recordings of sorts, some of them, and all these acoustic disc recordings sound incredible, man. I mean, you can tell how much time and love you are putting into these things. It's, it's awesome. You know, I've always appreciated well-recorded music, and I've always tried to keep that in mind. Of course, the music is the prime thing, and... There's a lot of music that I I recorded off the radio and, you know, that wasn't sonically the greatest, but, it, you know, the music was great. And this these recordings that this guy, Jonathan Bilchick, made were are really good. And, and, you know, when I have the master tape, I can get a really good transfer made. And many of our releases are available in what we call high definition, which is actually noticeably better sound quality than a CD. So, any uh, any recordings that you you know now that you're getting to go through your archives, and is there anything out there that you remember recording that you maybe haven't run across yet, or that you're hoping to you know eventually release that you've been looking forward to hearing again? Well, actually. There is one show that I'd love to find. I haven't been able to find, and I assume there's a recording of it. Yeah, years ago, Doc and I played uh, the Ryman Auditorium, and Randy Howard is a fantastic fiddle player, and I played on one of his albums, and a real sweet guy he was really fighting cancer and ultimately a battle that he lost, and uh, he didn't have much time left. And he asked me, if he could sit in and play a tune with Doc Watson, it was one of his lifelong dreams. And so I spoke to Doc, and we invited him up there, and he played the whole show. Oh, wow. And that tape is missing in action. So if anybody has, perchance, has a copy of that show. In fact, uh, George Gruen asked me about that show. He was there, and he 
he remembered it as something being real special. There's also a category of tapes that I don't remember at all. Like, <laughs> are you familiar with this? The new Smoky Grass Boys? Yeah, yeah. There was, um, you guys just put one of those out kind of recently, right? Last few, within the. Yeah, right. Well, had a, a final bunch of tapes were in, that were in California uh, sent up to, uh, we live in uh, Washington State. There was this seven inch reel of tape in a box and all it said on it was new smoky grass boys and i had had it briefly in berkeley california in 1966 67 for a few months a band called the smoky grass boys i thought it might be that and i i have a real good engineer here neville pearsall he's been transferring tapes for me so i i gave him this tape and, among others and he came back and said this stuff sounds pretty good so I checked it out, and I immediately knew it was me and Tony Rice and Todd Phillips playing bass, and I wasn't quite sure whether the fiddle player was Daryl Anger or Richard Green, but ultimately found out it was Daryl, and I didn't know who the banjo player was. I couldn't remember recording these tapes, like 15 bluegrass instrumentals recorded in stereo in my living room. It really sounded great. And I ultimately found out it was a banjo player named Robert Bowden who played on Daryl's first uh, album, Fiddlistics. He played on this cut, Ride the Wild Turkey, one of Daryl's tunes. So, uh, you know, I still don't remember doing that. <laughs> and it's very, you know, I, I should have because, you know, it, it's, so, it's so good, you know. But... I'm still finding stuff that I didn't even know I had. And I'm hoping to keep sharing it with hopefully ever broadening bunch of listeners that you can help us find. <laughs> I, I preach it every week at the very beginning of every podcast, man. And if people haven't signed up for like the treat of the week, like who's giving a free song away every week of this quality? <laughs> I mean, what you guys are doing is incredible. And the amount of music on there is just, and not just music, incredible music. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad you dig it. Oh, I love it, man. How many, uh, is Dog Work 6 was the last one. Are there many more of those left? Well, there's pretty much one uh, that would be all the tunes I've written in the past uh, three or four years. Oh, wow, cool. And I keep writing more, so there's quite a, quite a few of those but um that's about you know there may be others that i wrote for uh i don't know jingles and stuff you know now i when i write a tune i i write it out and even while i'm making it up which which actually is i mean there's an, a great advantage to that and then there's also a disadvantage because i used to just make them up and you know, by the time I was done making it up, I, I also had learned it, so to speak. You have to teach it to yourself how to play it, you know. But when I write them out, we've got the first two bars, I move on to the next bar. You know, I don't I didn't really learn that, you know. So I have to go back and learn, often read it for off the paper for months because the paper, you know, you, you become a prisoner to the paper, you know, the ultimate goal is to have it memorized 
And writing them down kind of lengthens that process. But it also, you know, I can wake up tomorrow and there it is, you know. And I used to think uh, when I make up a tune, if I can't remember this tomorrow, I mean, a lot of musicians, they would record their ideas or tunes, you know. I never wanted to do that. I figured if I can't remember it tomorrow, it wasn't memorable. <laughs> That's a great point. You know, so uh, I probably lost a few that way. Man, well, you retain some killers, though. <laughs> yeah, but um, there's about uh, maybe 170 tunes, and most of them are out on those six volumes. I, I basically determined that two gigabytes is about the maximum that a lot of people with Macs can download and conveniently, and so those... Dog Works volumes are all kind of music by the pound, you know. They, <laughs> right. They're all about two gigabytes worth. <laughs> One last question here. I don't want to keep you too long. I appreciate you doing this, but, you know, you've talked about um, what really strikes me as amazing is you've got this giant catalog of songs, and now you're, you're picking up these instruments and you have this whole new project that you're doing coming up here with the different instruments. What's some advice yeah. for people to compose their own tunes what's some advice you might have because besides writing memorable ones you're prolific as well which is rare well you know there's an old expression good composers borrow great composers steal <laughs> now, i'm a firm believer in the expression there's nothing new under the sun i think a lot of people a lot of musicians maybe artists chefs all you know anything creative you want to just there, there's another expression there's nothing as old as the desire to be new <laughs> and i taught you know we had this mandolin symposium for 12 years and i uh, put together a class in composition and the way i approached it was i would write down something like country waltz, funeral tune, a fast fiddle tune, a, a swing tune in B flat. And I would put little pieces of paper, fold them up, and I'd make the students pick one out of a hat. And whatever they got, they had to, you know, by the end of the week, write something like that. So it's good not to think of that you're going to really create something new you can it's okay to use what's there already as a basis to put together something a little different than that so that's what i would suggest i think all great artists study what's gone before you know there's a salvador dali museum in st petersburg florida that's kind of one big room and you walk around the circumference of this room and it's all in chronological order and you can see like the first 10 years he's imitating uh picasso he's uh, imitating uh, pissarro he's imitating uh, various painters and then after about 10 12 years you start to see salvador dali emerge and uh, my first tune i, I kind of you know, I was really just wanting to play like my heroes, you know, Bill Monroe, Frank Wakefield, Bobby Osborne, Jesse McReynolds. 
and I was kind of studying their solos and their and I noticed they all wrote original mandolin tunes. So I said, well, that must be part of the package. And I signed myself a tune. And, and you know, I took a, a song of Frank Wakefield's and used the chord progression for the first part and made up a bridge that still I haven't really heard a bridge like that. And, you know, it played fast and made a melody over those chords. And I had this tune, Cedar Hill. And then uh, the next, a few weeks later, I just, out of the air, found another tune. And it, you know, it was kind of derivative, bluegrass instrumental, but it was a little different. And it's called Fanny Hill. And I went on from there. I think there's a a term called a motif you know just a little bit of melodic material you know and i'll latch on to something and then try to develop it but my advice to anyone that wants to keep studying whatever turns you on you know if it's bluegrass mandolin just go back to the source bill monroe uh, that's one thing Frank Wakefield uh, taught me is he had made a really complete study of Bill Monroe's tunes, his solos, by slowing down records. And he managed to learn a lot of this stuff note for note. And, and he showed me, you know, pointed the way to that. And then I started doing it. For something to come out, you have to put put a bunch of stuff in first, <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> so you know a lot of a lot of young creative people they just want to do their own thing right away. You know, well, it doesn't work out that way. I mean, maybe for Mozart and a few other five year old geniuses, but I came up the hard way and you know just took it step by step and learn how it's done by people you consider masters you know and let's really get in there and and you know almost every time somebody through the years has come up and showed showed me they learned one of my tunes i always can point out two or three things they just didn't get you know i think it's important to just get every last note that's why i started putting those tunes in books, you know. Not to say that I don't like making variations. I kind of never play any of these tunes exactly the same way twice. I mean, the melodies I pretty much stick to, but there's a lot of flexibility in phrasing and, and even writing a tune. There are a lot of little places where there are many ways you could express that idea that's one you know difficult thing about you know writing out a tune is you have to it, it just has to be one way uh, i mean unless you want to write five different <laughs> ways you could vary it but, <laughs> right but that you know it's all a good it's discipline combination of discipline and then freeing yourself from the discipline you have to strike of many balances just keep learning more tunes learn stardust learn bluegrass stomp learn in a sentimental mood there's so many great melodies and they're all accessible
now more than ever. So don't be impatient, you know, because if you get something down and internalize it, memorize it, you got the finger, you know, sometimes I'll discover a new fingering for something like 10 years later. Oh, I could have done it this way. You know, that's easier. I mean, easier is better as long as you can get it out and make every note count. A lot of people, you know, they want to play fast and there's a little spot in that tune that's hard to play and they just never get it. Well, that's exactly what they should be working on slow. If you learn to play slow and then you get it down and then you memorize it, then the speed will come. You can't build a building without a foundation. You know? <laughs> exactly. <You know? laughs> Man, that's, that's some great advice. Hey, you know, I was destined to be in the record business. You know why? Why is that? Because I was born in 45, which made me 33 and 78. <laughs> oh, man, that's perfect. And now I am 78. Dog, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. I'm well, thanks, Daniel. You, uh, good luck. To, uh, I still think, you know, you ought to have another show called Mandolins and Weed. For sure. Once South Carolina legalizes it, we'll be good to go. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, let me know when they do. D bet you bet, buddy. That never, stood, that never stood in my way, incidentally. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I'm a confessed criminal. Thanks again, dog. Oh, thank you, and uh, good luck with everything, and thanks for plugging Acoustic Disc. Oh, man, it's my, it's my honor. If you, you know, get on our mailing list, and you can get a treat of the week, or you can just go get it, you know, under free stuff on the website. I always, I always clarify, too, uh, or the, some, of the, uh, some of the top of the podcast, so I'm like, sign up for the treat of the week. By the way, it's a song. Don't, don't expect anything else. It's a song, not, a, uh, not any sort of dog yeah, treats. Actually, <laughs> this, month, this month we discounted uh, the, the boarding house, the complete boarding house set of Olden in the Way. We took $5 off. You know, it's, I don't know, it's 50 tracks or something, you know. Yeah. And the prices, that's the other thing. The prices on the website are reasonable. I mean, like that dog or the uh, Doc and Dog, the uh, bonus version, the, like the expanded version with all the yeah. alternate take, it's only 15 bucks. That's, that's insane. That's a great price. People should go out and buy that right now. You know, uh, the, the paradigm of downloads, it takes... You know, when we traced, my wife Tracy and I took over the company in 2020, our partners wanted to retire and we had an opportunity to buy the company and, and then the pandemic hit. And when we looked at it, physical CD sales were about 20%. And so we just decided to go all digital. I mean, we still have maybe 10 titles left of CDs, but you know, it's it's such a beautiful concept. I just have to make one. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, right. <laughs> uh, and so I think it's initially when we established a section of our website called Acoustic Oasis, just for the digital releases, we had two different prices, one for MP3 and one for CD quality. And then I started doing the the high definition and they probably might have been another price but i realized that you know it doesn't cost us we don't have manufacturing costs you know the record business cd business physical business is just really 
it's a consignment business. They can return them. They can they can get lost. They can get stolen. They can get damaged. They, it's just, and you never know how many to make. You know, the more you make, the cheaper it is. But then if you don't sell them and you can't write them off until you've sold them, it's just a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just, uh, so if there are three different levels of quality, they're all the same price because it doesn't really matter to us. It's just space on your device. You know, if you want the high def version, you got it, you know, for the same price as the MP3. You know, just in the past few months, the the publishing costs have risen. Uh, you know, which I I'm have both hats on. You know, as a composer, I get it's it's nice to get more money out of that. But as a record company, it's you know hurts a little to have to pay more. But you know, we're into supporting the arts, and we'll try to keep these prices reasonable we realize that people can hear music for free. You know, you can go on YouTube, you know, you can go on our website and listen to at least two tracks for every album there. And there's like 140 of them. So we appreciate people buying the downloads and, you know, we pay royalties, you know, Doc Watson, Tony Rice, their estates and everybody gets paid royalties. So. I feel good about it. Yeah, man, you should. It's uh, mm -hmm. on top of everything you've done. It's, it's just one more important thing that you that you give to this world. So it's awesome, buddy. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for helping us promote it because that's where, you know, we it's hard to compete with the big boys, whoever and wherever they are. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. What an absolute legend. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you again to uh, Dog for doing the episode. Be sure to check out that workshop with Jake coming up in November. Links below, and you have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody.